How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did Synchronized Swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joined in conversation by Edward J. Larson, a professor of history and the Hugh and Hazel Darling Chair in Law at Pepperdine University. He is the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning History of the Scopes Trial, Summer for the Gods, and most recently, American Inheritance, Liberty and Slavery in the Birth of a Nation, 1765 to 1795. Dr. Larson, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. During the roughly 30 years covered by your book, you point out the seeming inconsistency of so many white Americans promoting and seeking liberty for themselves, especially in the years leading up to the Revolutionary War, but simultaneously denying liberty of any type to imported Africans and their descendants. Did those white Americans recognize the irony of their seeking freedoms they were denying to their own slaves, particularly those who were slave owners? Did they recognize the irony? Absolutely. Some of them did. Not all, but some of them did. Take, for example, James Otis. There was nobody more important in America in the run-up to the revolutionary era than James Otis. And he recognized it. He put it into his pamphlets about ending slavery, that we can't hold people enslaved and be calling for liberty. Now, he was not the only one. You see that with John Hancock. You see that with Samuel Adams. Uh, You'll see it as you push forward. You'll see it with people like Hamilton, Lafayette, even George Mason in Virginia, who was a slave owner himself, um, Governor Morris. You do see it, but it's not universal. So let's talk about the beginning of slavery in our country, if we could, for a while. When did slavery first start in this country? Was it planned that we would have slavery or did it happen by accident? Well, it was both by accident and planned. It depends on what colonies you look at. If you're talking about the uh, 13 original American colonies, slavery started in the 1600s. It was fully formed by the end of the 1600s. It wasn't fully formed. It was sort of accidental the way it sort of creeped into Virginia. But where it really got going was in the Carolinas. And there it was fully planned. It was worked into the fundamental constitutions of of Carolina, written by John Locke for the founders of that colony. That land had been given to a group of nobles as their their land to develop as a colony. And they wrote a constitution before they went there, and it fully incorporated chattel slavery. At the time, was there slavery in London or England? No. There wasn't slavery in Western Europe. How many slaves were ultimately imported into the United States or the colonies? And how many were here at the time of the Revolutionary War and the Civil War? Well, those numbers are a little bit elusive, but some great scholars have tackled those issues. And I'd say maybe 600,000 
were imported into what became the United States, or at least became the 13 original colonies, maybe 600,000, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. At the time of the revolution, that number had probably creeped up to 700,000, say. So that would mean it was about 20% of the population at that time. And by the Civil War, the number was up to 4 million, about 15% of the population. Was slavery initially in all the colonies or were just the Southern colonies? No, all 13 colonies had legalized slavery and they all had a not insignificant population of enslaved people. But there were no white slaves, were there? No, there were Native Americans who were enslaved and there were Africans who were enslaved, and they were certainly mixed, the offsprings of whites and uh, blacks that were enslaved. In some parts of Europe, was there slavery, if not in London or England? There was something, uh, certainly there was akin to slavery in the Ottoman Empire, probably in the Russian Empire, in, in areas that would have been part of Eastern Europe. And there was a form of slavery along the Mediterranean, where uh, people from either the islands in the Mediterranean that were Spanish or Portuguese or the mainland would enslave Muslims from North Africa and where North Africans would come in and raid the islands like Majorca and take um, enslaved people back. So there was some slavery down uh, in the um, Mediterranean, but there was not slavery in England. Was slavery more prevalent in the South in this country because of the need for slaves to help with the picking of cotton, tobacco, and other agricultural products? When did the South really begin to need to exponentially get more slaves? Rice plantations in South Carolina. Um, rice planting and harvesting and husking rice is brutal work. And you're in back then malarial swamps and marshes. Uh, dreadfully hot. You have a long growing season. And so really the rice plantations of South Carolina, as much as cotton, cotton didn't really come around until the cotton gin, which of course was after the revolution. Also the tobacco and other plantation agriculture in the South. First, they had plantation agriculture there where they didn't have much in the North, except in the Connecticut River Valley, some in the Hudson Valley and some in the Delaware River Valley. And so there were plantations there and there were enslaved people there. But in the South, you had the long growing season that made slavery profitable because what are you gonna do with those enslaved people during the winter if you don't have a long growing season? Also, the heat was oppressive. And as I'd mentioned, the swampy areas of Georgia and the Carolinas and even Southern Virginia, it was tough to keep white people even indentured white people who would be brought over because you had multiple colonies and a white person, even if they were indentured for 14 years or something, they could run away. They run to another colony. And once they got to another colony, nobody could chase them down. Native Americans who were enslaved could escape and run out to the uh, frontier back to where other Native Americans were dominant. But what's a black person, especially a black person who doesn't even know English and can't read, what's a black person to do? Were slaves being imported into Central America and Latin America at greater numbers than into the U.S. colonies? And if so, why? Well, not really into Central America or Latin America generally, because you had a large Native American population that was effectively enslaved and made to work in the mines and other places in Spanish parts of 
South America, Central America, and Mexico. But where there were enormous number of enslaved people being imported were into the Caribbean and into Portuguese Brazil, because both of those places turned to sugar. Sugar was the most valuable export crop in the world. White gold, they called it. The economies of France and the Netherlands, they both had colonies in the Caribbean. And of course, the Brits were driven by the sugar plantations of the Caribbean, Portugal by the sugar plantations of Brazil. And those used enslaved Africans as their main labor source. Again, they couldn't keep white people doing those jobs. What is the total number of slaves that were imported into the Western Hemisphere as best as we know? Wow, that's tough to calculate clearly, but maybe 12 million who were captured and sent off from the various slave ports in um, Africa, and maybe 10 million arrived. Who was financing the capture, the transportation, and the sale of slaves? Was that people in Europe or the United States or the colonies, I should say? Well, people initially in Europe. It started with the Portuguese. Remember when Spain tried to get to um, China, which is where they were all trying to get to, to trade with Columbus and the others, Magellan, they went across the Atlantic. But the Portuguese, even before that time, starting about 1450, they tried to go around Africa. Europeans hadn't gone to sub-Saharan Africa before. The Islamic countries of North Africa pretty much served as a barrier, but the Portuguese beginning in 1450s and finished by 1500 would go around Africa to get to India and to Spice Islands and to China. And on the way, they established bases down the African coast on both sides. Now they became eventually places like Angola and Mozambique, but there were other places. And that's where they began capturing enslaved people and then transport them as a major product when Portugal bumped into Brazil and acquired Brazil and made it into a uh, sugar colony. They would use these Africans, brought these Africans to work that. And then they expanded their business by taking enslaved people on up to the Caribbean and selling them there when the uh, sugar industry moved up to Barbados and the other colonies. And finally, back in 1619, the very first enslaved Africans to come to what became the United States and brought into Jamestown were from a Portuguese slave ship. I thought originally that those who were enslaved in our country were actually intended to be indentured servants, but they more or less became slaves. Is that right? That'd be fair to say. That's why true chattel slavery clearly first came, not that they're not instances before, came to South Carolina. When in the Carolinas, in the Constitution, Barbados had already been established. Barbados was founded about the same time as Virginia, just a bit later. And Barbados had become a very profitable sugar plantation colony. And chattel slavery had developed there. And then as the Barbatan small farmers were being pushed off by the growth of plantations in Barbados, many of them were the initial settlers of Carolina. So the slave codes and the full-fledged chattel slavery that became endemic in the American South was really tied to the late 1600s in the Carolinas. Things had started earlier in Virginia, but you know, it was unclear. Some of them were treated like indentured servants. It was a complex story. Edmund Morgan tells it well in his classic book, American Slavery, American Freedom. 
So just to finish on who was actually financing this, were there not prominent Europeans and in, in England, um, many people who were actually helping to provide the financing for these ships to go across the ocean? Absolutely. It started with Portugal, but Britain got into that activity in a major way. And so by the time of the American Revolution, it had moved to British and was beginning to move toward Americans financing it and transporting it. And then after the revolution, it became, at least for the United States, primarily an American enterprise. But it had moved to British by before the revolution. And indeed, the British started opening slave in stations where they would enslave people and capture people and also acquire Africans that were right like Bunch Island right in Africa. So the slaves who were transported from Africa to the Western Hemisphere, what percentage actually made it over here alive? And what percentage obviously died because of disease or other kinds of problems en route? You know, again, the numbers aren't perfect, but the best estimate, maybe 90% made it, 10% died, maybe slightly higher, but around that numbers. So the estimates are maybe 10 and a half million made it. Now, most of these did not come directly to the United States. Even for the United States, most came directly into Brazil or into the Caribbean and then were retransported to the United States. So when slaves were captured in Africa, were families broken up or did a whole family come over together. And once they came to the colonies, were the families broken up then? Typically, they were broken up before, from what we know. And again, we have limited resources to explain all this. But it seems like the more common experience was that children or young adults were captured, sometimes siblings, and siblings were shipped together, but not whole families. And then even if they did make it over together as siblings, they were typically broken up when they were sold in the Barbados or elsewhere. All right, let's go, if we can now, to the uh, Revolutionary War period of time. What series of actions did the British take that so upset the white colonial leaders? Why did the British take those actions relating to slaves? Who was it? Was it the parliament or the king who were forcing these actions? And was King George really that involved? Well, he was involved because he was enforcing what Parliament was doing and and actively enforcing it. What upset the Americans, as they soon to call themselves, the white colonial leaders with the British leading up to the Revolutionary War really had nothing to do, little to do, little to do with slavery and had more to do with imposing taxes without representation. The, the Americans were certainly used to paying taxes. They paid taxes to their colonies and then the colonies paid requisitions back to, to England to support the war. Um, we're talking about the many colonial wars, almost constant colonial wars culminating in the French and Indian War in the 1750s and 60s. And they imposed taxes to help pay for those wars, the Stamp Act, the Sugar Act, and the Townsend Duties. And the fact that those were imposed only on the colonies, they didn't mind taxes that were imposed on everybody because then they'd have virtual representation because English people would have to pay them too and they had representation in parliament. But if parliament could impose a tax only on the colonists, taxation without representation, well, what's to stop them from taking any amount of money? And that they compared to slavery. If they can take our property without our representation, What's to stop them? We are as good as enslaved. That's what they said. Almost everyone used that rhetoric. 
Of course, they also objected to the proclamation of 1763, which cut them off from settling the frontier, which they viewed as their future. Um, the Quebec Act, the Quartering Acts, there were a whole series of things. The British did these things thinking they wouldn't really aggravate the colonists. They thought the colonists were doing fine. And they did so in the interest of national interest, of national security, of gaining revenue, because they had been so highly taxed in England. They were in such debt after the French and Indian War, and they thought they'd help the colonies by securing Canada and therefore securing their security. So they honestly thought what they were doing was fair. And so Parliament began forcing these actions and the king enforced them. And at first, the American colonists focused their agitation on Parliament, but then they realized that King George III was just as involved as Parliament. But was King George really the evil person who was forcing slavery on us, as Thomas Jefferson initially said in the first draft of the Declaration of Independence? Hmm, it's a good question. Um, no, I don't think he was quite the evil person forcing slavery, but what he did do is not parliament, but the king as executive had the ability to veto. Parliament was not involved in this at all. Um, the king had the power to veto colonial laws. And the colonies began for a variety of reasons. In retrospect, we may say good or bad, but for a variety of reasons, they began trying to self-limit the importation of enslaved Africans into the colonies. Many of the colonies were doing this, including Southern colonies, including Virginia. And that's the one that aggravated Jefferson. But Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, the other colonies as well, they didn't want those numbers to go up. White laborers didn't want the competition. There were a whole variety of reasons. And so they were passing laws to limit the importation of Africans. And King George was vetoing them all because he viewed the colonies, best we can tell, imperial policy viewed the colonies in a subservient role. They were producers of goods that England couldn't produce. That included rice, that included cotton, that included wheat and fish, and those were critical. Foodstuffs going from North American colonies down to feed the Caribbean colonies, which were then producing sugar. So for all those reasons, they wanted to keep the flow of enslaved people going to the colonies and they vetoed the laws that would restrict further importation. So that was what Jefferson was playing on and exaggerating, but it does show an interesting fact. It shows what you'd asked earlier. Did Americans see an irony here to fight for liberty and yet not overturn the practice of slavery? And it shows that Jefferson, who was a wonderful rhetorician, he was a polemicist, he was a propagandist, par excellent. And he realized that in the Declaration of Independence, that that argument that we only have slavery in the colonies because England is forcing it on us, he knew that would resonate well. And so he wanted to play that card. Okay. Who led the opposition to what the British were doing? Was that the northern colonies? And if so, why weren't the southern colonies so upset uh, with what the British were doing? Why was it the northern colonies, particularly Massachusetts, seemed so upset with what the king and the parliament were doing? Well, Virginia was just as upset as Massachusetts. 
Uh, Virginia and Massachusetts were the twin poles of the American Revolution. They were uh, the two largest colonies. They were tremendously important. They produced John Hancock on one end and George Washington on the other. Um, So it wasn't just North versus South in that respect. It, It wasn't just the leaders working down. It was actually a groundswell of opposition to taxation without representation, to the taking away of freedom, to taking away the frontier with the proclamation of 1763. Um, The common people wanted the frontier just as the big landowners like Washington wanted to invest in the frontier. So all those things played into it. Now, there was to an extent that it might not have been as strong in Georgia and the Carolinas, but it also wasn't as strong in New York. And you look beyond that, the British Caribbean colonies at first were involved, but sort of it didn't catch on there. Same way with Canada. Canada was British then, and there was some resistance there. There was some movement, but then it didn't follow through. It really focused in on New England and Virginia, the Chesapeake Bay. Those were the centers of it. There was more money there. There was more of a tradition of independence. In places like Massachusetts, you had an independent governor, and you also had an independent legislature, well-established, as in Connecticut, where in Virginia, you had a very established House of Burgesses that was locally controlled uh, by the rich landowners who were fundamentally affected by this taxation without representation. You also had a strong historical religious resistance to England and the king. Remember, New England was a hotbed of Puritans who were part of the Cromwell and part of the revolt against uh, the Stuarts, and they could carry it over to the Hanoverians. So in that sense, you had an anti-monarchical tradition. And in, in the North, you had this religious tradition. That One thing that would make the North different than the South is the North had more urban areas. You had New York, you had Newport, you had Providence, you had Boston, you had Philadelphia. And it's easier for a revolution to foment in an urban area, and the South only had Charleston. So what prompted the colonies to to have a meeting among themselves, now known as the First Continental Congress? When was it and what occurred there of any significance? The First Continental Congress took place in the summer of 1774, and it was response to the Intolerable Acts. Revolutionary activity had exploded in Massachusetts, leading to the Boston Tea Party and resistance to the tax on tea. And as a result, England, trying to make an example of Massachusetts and singling them out, revoked their charter, closed the harbor, demanded payment, and sent in troops, the so-called intolerable acts, or coercive acts is what the British called them. And in response to that, rather than single out and isolate Massachusetts, all the colonies gathered together in the summer for a united resistance to the Intolerable Act, saying, if you can do that to Massachusetts, if you can take away their government and their charter, you could do it to us in Virginia as well. And so delegates from 12 colonies gathered together in Philadelphia in the summer of 1776 to plan a united resistance. And that united resistance took the form of a boycott of all British goods. And the idea was to force the merchants And the moneyed people in England, who pretty much controlled the House of Commons, because the way elections worked in England, the common people couldn't vote, only the the parliament was a sort of a subset of the moneyed elites, and to put pressure on them to revoke these activities. So the significance was that they resulted into a united front against England. 
And Britain didn't do much to respond that the colonies like. So they ultimately had a second Continental Congress. When was that? And what was significant about that Congress? Well, at the end of the first Continental Congress in 1774, they called a second Continental Congress. It turned out to be much the same people for the colonies to reconvene the following summer. Remember, in the winter, people have to go home. But back then, the summer was free. So to come back the next summer to review what had been done and to see what further steps should be taken. And so it had already been called. But then before it happened, these tensions truly exploded in Massachusetts. When Massachusetts continued to resist the troops sent to Boston in response to the Boston Tea Party and resist the abolition of the Massachusetts state government, they continued to meet out in the countryside in Concord. They collected arms. The local militia was forming John Hancock and Samuel Adams was the leader. And then the military governor who was occupying Boston decided to march out and disperse the rebels and take over the armory in Concord. And that, well, that was the shot heard around the world, the battles in Lexington and Concord, and then the massacre of British troops marching back to Boston. That set the whole story, and that had just happened. So John Adams, when he came down to the Second Continental Congress, he had gone around to see the battlefield, and he could come down at the start of that conference with a blow-by-blow -blow account that the shooting war had begun. So uh, at the Second Continental Congress, a committee is formed to decide uh, how to propose in writing what they're going to try to do. And ultimately, it's called the Declaration of Independence. The drafting of it was given to Thomas Jefferson. But how could he write in that Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal when he owned several hundred slaves and had several slaves with him? And what was he referring to in his famous preamble that all men are created equal? Well, that's a really good question. Um, remember, one of his best biographers in the title of his book described Jefferson as the American Sphinx. What was really going on in that brilliant head of his? Now, saying all men are created equal, what did it really mean to him? Was he thinking white men? Hmm. Um, we really don't know. Because that was rhetoric that had been used, people like Locke and other people that he was borrowing from. And it goes to the question of more. Back then, if you were a white person thinking about it, it would go back to the idea in England, you had an aristocracy um, that were born as, as lords. You had a king who was born. Um, they still do that. But America had developed this notation. And I think they were thinking mostly about white men. People were born equal. It didn't matter. You could be born, you know, like Ben Franklin or Roger Sherman, born at the lowest rung of the economic order, be an indentured servant like Ben Franklin, and become, well, the greatest scientist in the world, the great leader at the Second Continental Congress. And Benjamin Franklin, by the way, was on the committee with Jefferson writing this document. So I think that's what he was thinking about. It was good rhetoric. It captured a sense they have. And I don't think he was really thinking about his enslaved people when he was writing this. So let's talk about uh, the British response to the Declaration of Independence. Did they actually formally respond to it, or did they, in effect, uh, not respond formally, but had other people informally saying, how can you talk about slavery when you are enslaving people yourselves? 
Well, of course, the British formally rejected the Declaration of Independence and didn't recognize independence until after it was won on the battlefield, followed the Battle of, of Yorktown eight years later. Um, but certainly many leading British people would make a comment, probably the most famous one, but it was simply representative. Samuel Johnson, who was the great writer of the dictionary and a famous essayist at that time in England, uh, famously said at the comment, how is it that uh, we hear the loudest yelps for liberty from the drivers of Negroes? Well, that pretty well expresses it. And many people in parliament made similar comments about the hypocrisy of the Americans, because there was already a strong abolition movement in America by this time. And there was a very strong movement in England by this time to end the slave trade and to ban the slave trade. They made use of it in both their propaganda and in their war effort, that these guys are just hypocrites. You can see it probably most famously for an American, just reading Kravica. He was an American loyalist, Kravica. He wrote letters from American farmer. And um, boy, you can see it all the way through there, the way he's needling the Americans for fighting for liberty, but having enslaved people. How did the British um, take advantage of uh, the slavery situation by trying to get slaves to be on their side in the Revolutionary War. Did that actually work? And how effective was that? The British did the logical thing, the same thing Lincoln would later do, the North would do in the, in the Civil War, of early issuing a proclamation, first just in Virginia by the Virginia military governor, Lord Dunsmore, but then colony-wide by um, General Clinton in all the colonies to declare that any enslaved people who left their patriot masters and came over to the British side would get their freedom. And Lincoln, of course, did the same thing with the Emancipation Proclamation. And that, of course, both weakened the patriot war effort on one side and also brought more workers into the British war effort. So it, it was a pragmatic move. And of course, it's good propaganda to, that's saying they're, they're not the ones fighting for liberty. We're the ones bringing liberty. So all the way around, it was, a, as the British would view it, a win-win-win. Did the American revolutionary fighters ever use um, their slaves to fight against the British, or was that a bridge too far? Well, it certainly wasn't a bridge too far, not their enslaved people per se, but especially in New England and the North, many enslaved people, um, enslaved African-Americans fought in the militias of Massachusetts. Rhode Island even created a company, a black company of soldiers that had been enslaved in Rhode Island. Typically the arrangement was that if you volunteered or if you served and you satisfactorily served, you would get your freedom. So that there were current enslaved Africans fighting, you name it, fighting at Lexington and Concord, fighting at the Battle of Bunker Hill, fighting to capture the um, Ticonderoga and Crown Point, fighting in the battles all over New England, fighting in the defense of New York, those were throughout. When Washington came up to take command of the troops who were then encircling Boston in um, late in 1775, 
he found that the lines were filled of black soldiers and they were part of his troops. At first, he tried to dismiss them and finally realized he couldn't do without them. At the time of the Revolutionary War, was slavery still legal in all the colonies? It was still legal when the revolution began, but the revolution led to the first great emancipation, frankly, and certainly in American history, but frankly, in world history. And um, during the revolution, several states ended slavery. Pennsylvania did it by statute, gradual abolition statute passed in 1780, which was right smack dab in the middle of the Revolutionary War. Uh, Massachusetts also in 1780 wrote their state constitution, which said all men are born free. And then a series of court cases realized it. Vermont in 1778 wrote their um, draft constitution or their proposed constitution, if Vermont was admitted as a separate a state which abolished slavery. So an emancipation program was clearly underway during the revolution in response to the revolution during the Revolutionary War. Dr. Larson, I want to thank you for a very interesting conversation. We've been able to cover your book up to the uh, more or less the end of the Revolutionary War. We'll have a part two conversation where we'll talk about what happened uh, at the completion of the war and what happened when we began the Constitution. Thank you very much for this part of the conversation. Thank you so very much. It's been wonderful talking to you. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.